0: It's the 9th of May, 2015, and this is episode 211. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer to peer future. On today's show, we talk LTV's second anniversary. Andreas tells us all about his new project, Third Key Solutions. Stephanie tells us about the Book of Satoshi, a newly released compilation of posts and emails authored by Bitcoin catalyst Satoshi Nakamoto. Stephanie voiced the audio version of it. It's available on audible.com now. Recently, Bitcoin Talk got subpoenaed as part of a Butterfly Labs investigation and handled it pretty well, actually. And we wrap today's show with a conversation about Ripple in the aftermath of a million dollar freeze orchestrated by Ripple Labs, facilitated by their protocol, and executed by the exchange platform it all happened on. We talk about the duality of ability and responsibility. It's a good one. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. The gang's all here today, and we're doing a host recording with me, Adam, and Andreas. Not only is today a host recording day, but it's also kind of a special day for us because we are celebrating Let's Talk Bitcoin's two-year anniversary today. So happy birthday to us, guys.
2: I'd sing a song, but unfortunately, that particular song that you're thinking about, you can think about it in your head, but you can't sing it out loud on a podcast because the copyright owners would try to charge us a fee. So happy birthday. Let's Talk Bitcoin.
1: Yes, indeed. But I just wanted to say to all the listeners, thanks for listening for the last two years. It's been a real pleasure to do this show with both of you guys too. I'm really glad that we're still going.
0: Absolutely. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much again to both of you for doing this, for continuing to to show up and to talk about this stuff. It's, it's an interesting topic, absolutely, but doing it for two years has been a long time. I've done more episodes of this show than anything else. I don't think it's the longest chronolo-
2: chronologically yet for me though. Yeah, but it's a third of the lifetime of Bitcoin. Think about it that way. Does that make us a traditional institution in Bitcoin? Well, I think that we're a legacy institution
0: at this point.
1: Yeah, it's been two years, but like 10 bit years. So thanks to the listeners, especially because we certainly wouldn't be here without you.
0: So we've been talking about uh, multi-sig for now, I guess, about six months, you know, in terms of actual implementations that were out there. And the concept has been floating around since very early in the life cycle of Bitcoin. Andreas, you know, you're one of kind of the, I wouldn't call you a trust broker, but you're one of the more reputable individuals in the space. And so it was really interesting to see your latest project, Third Key Solutions. Can you kind of talk
2: to us about what it is that you're doing with Third Key? Over the last several years, we've seen a lot of very bad security issues come up, especially with companies that have custodial control over people's money. So the uh, empty Gox debacle and and many others like that. Now, multi-signature technology offers a potential solution to that, but technology is not enough. Multi-signature technology is part of the puzzle, but you also need operational plans and people and training and various other things to put together in order to achieve higher levels of security in any company. Third Key Solutions came out of that need. And over the past 10 months or so, I have been assisting Pamela Morgan, the CEO of Third Key Solutions, in building multi-signature governance programs for companies, and as part of those, holding the third key. After doing that for 10 months, she realized that this was Something that should be done as a separate business. And we decided to start Third Key Solutions, and I joined as the CTO. And what Third Key Solutions does is offer key management services consulting, but also the ability to generate and store a key securely offline in cold storage, and then use that key to sign transactions when a recovery is needed. So, take for example a situation where A company, Bitcoin startup, let's say, has just received money from investors, and they have some of this money in Bitcoin. For a variety of reasons, it's probably not a good idea to just put that money in the personal account of the CEO. That creates opportunities for loss and theft by hackers and all kinds of security concerns, but it also creates too much concentration. What if the CEO decides to grab the money and go? We certainly have seen that before. So it makes sense to have a multi-signature where maybe three signatures are issued and two of those signatures are required to spend funds. The CEO has one and maybe the chief financial officer or one of the investors has the second key and they use that to disperse funds every month. And then the question is, what do you do with the third key? And the best practice in the industry is to take that third key and have it generated and held by a completely independent third party, a separate company that holds that key and holds it in multiple locations in cold storage, geographically dispersed, and that generates that key completely independently. And that means that if one of the two primary key holders loses their key or becomes incapacitated or something goes wrong or one of the keys is compromised, then the other two keys, including the offline key, can be used to recover the funds and do a sweep transaction. That's basically the primary service that we offer Third Key Solutions, uh, mostly to businesses, Bitcoin startups, companies in the Bitcoin space that hold a lot of Bitcoin, but also occasionally also to individuals who hold a lot of Bitcoin and need to have better solutions for security, for multi-signature, and perhaps for estate planning and continuity. You know, a lot of people who have Bitcoin in this space, if they follow the advice which is, you know, don't never write down your password, never give your key to anyone. The problem with that is if something happens to them, their family can't recover the Bitcoin, whether that's to pay their healthcare costs or, you know, if the worst comes to worst, to provide some funds for their heirs, for their legacy. That's another area where multi-signature solutions can be applied. But once again, the question is, who holds the third key? And so we solve that problem with third key solutions.
1: I have a couple questions about this, Andreas. Cool project. I think this is really needed. It's pretty obvious that this is gonna be something people will find value in. My first question is this sounds like kind of a long-term commitment. I mean, obviously you may not be involved with third key solutions forever, but there has to be some continuity there for the third key too, because right, because what if something happens to you or Pamela and can't access the third key?
2: Well, part of that is having operational processes to diversify that risk. Part of it also is having a good key rotation policy, which means that you periodically sweep funds and rotate keys so that you can have that risk more diversified. Another thing we're doing, which I didn't talk about, is we're creating an industry coalition or industry association called a Key Recovery Network. And what that is, is getting together with companies that offer the same type of service And two companies that we started this with are Keeper in Canada, K E E P R dot C A, which is a company run by uh, Michael Perklin, who uh, designs the cryptocurrency security standard as well as the cryptocurrency certifications for professional certifications like the Certified Bitcoin Professional. And that company also holds keys and does security audits and things like that. And also Armory of the well-known Armory Wallet, and they hold keys. And so what we're doing is we're working with these two companies and gradually we expect several other companies to create a network where we can have multiple keys distributed, not just with third parties holding them, but with multiple third parties that are independent and in different jurisdictions and geographies, holding either parts of a multi-signature or parts of a split shared key, which in technical terms would mean using Shamir's secret sharing scheme to split a key into multiple parts and then distribute those among different companies in different jurisdictions and geographies. So we're trying to really look at what is the long-term plan for diversifying risk in this industry. And the most important thing is decentralization, right? Not having all the control in one place. Third Key Solutions never has custodial control. We never take enough keys to, or generate enough keys and hold enough keys to sign transactions on our own. We never control the funds. But even within that business, we want to diversify the risk even further and share it with some of our potential competitors who can be partners in decentralizing the risk.
1: I'm glad you explained that because, I mean, obviously it's way more intricate than just Andreas is holding the third key (laughs) or something like that. I know this is a relatively new business for you, but has a situation come up yet where there's been sort of an emergency where somebody needed to access their third key? Have you kind of had to do anything yet or is it mostly just building up the protocols at this point?
2: Yeah, we've been doing this for 10 months now behind the scenes and we have had to execute uh, quite a few recovery transactions, most of them having to do not with natural disasters or a key loss, but with either a technical problem or, uh, for example, one of the signers is out of town and they're having difficulties with their laptop which is one of the holds one of the signing keys or there's a bug in the software that they're using and they need to access operational funds quickly to pay a month's payroll or something like that and so we would step in there and we we have several times executed recovery transactions like that now keep in mind that a recovery plan that you don't test is worthless so part of doing this this is 98 percent operations and, and process and procedure to ensure that when the time comes, you're ready to do it. And then 2% technology to support everything. So a lot of this is a lot of planning in advance, exactly how do you do recoveries? When do you do them under what conditions? And then testing, testing, testing to make sure that you can do recoveries in various scenarios. And constant, constant testing again and again. If we're not testing with customers, we're testing our internal procedures and we're cross-checking everything continuously. So this is a very operational business. It's about just being very methodical and thinking about all of the possible risks in advance so you're not rushing at the last moment trying to figure out how to do this. So third key holds the third key, but it sounds like a big
0: part of the operation is actually designing the plan and practices, right, that actually go into making the uh, multi-sig solution that is being used by the particular company. In the ones that you've seen so far, or in the ones that you guys have set up, is there a lot of difference from one company's multi-sig solution to the other? Or is it kind of like there's a standard best practice that most companies use, and then you might deviate from that, but mostly, most people are going to use one type of plan?
2: Well, we're actually seeing quite a bit of variation. It depends on the needs of the company. Some companies need one or two accounts in order to use repeatedly. Other companies want to generate a different address for each account, in which case, We're not just doing multi-signature, we're doing hierarchical deterministic multi-signature, which is much more complex. We're generating trees of addresses. Some companies may work with partners or with end customers. We're going to be doing an announcement soon of one of those companies, which is very exciting. And and so it's quite a complex space. You have to consider the operational requirements of each company, what the risks they're facing and what they're trying to achieve. And then that's part of the services we offer is to try to design a solution that's that's appropriate for each company.
1: Andreas, how do you generate a HD tree of multi-sig addresses? I'm not aware. Is there custom software that you're using? Because I'm not aware of anything that's sort of like commercially available to even do that.
2: (laughs) So yes, there, there is quite a bit of custom software. All all of the keys are, keys are generated in a fairly consistent manner, which means, uh, using offline, highly secure systems with cryptographically secure sources of entropy and cryptographically secure pseudo random number generators that then take those sources of entropy and create keys. And then from there, turning those keys into hierarchical deterministic wallets, exporting hardened, extensible public keys, then combining multiple of those extensible public keys into a multi-signature tree, and then issuing addresses from that. Even more complex is the recovery process to execute a recovery. It's actually quite computationally intensive to do a recovery on a tree like that, because there may be tens of thousands of branches that you need to derive and tens of thousands of transaction outputs, unspent outputs that you need to marshal for a transaction. And yeah, that's part of what I do as CTO is write the custom software to do that. And we also work with some technology partners with both hardware and software to solve that. One of the things that we find is really helpful is the cryptocurrency security standard, which is being developed by the uh, crypto consortium, which, which develops these standards, as well as the professional certifications I mentioned earlier. And I'm part of the steering committee for that and that really offers some guidelines on security which i think will will become a very important part of the industry's best practices. So uh, clearly the type of service that you're offering is enterprise
0: level and then it sounds like you deal with, you know, individuals who have a real security concern because they have a lot, you know, they have, they have a lot of funds that they need to protect. So it goes a little bit beyond the normal user. What you described there with a third key hierarchical deterministic, you know, wallet is really interesting to me. I think that that's something again where like you could you could see that as if everybody using Bitcoin had that, and everybody was using a third party service, whether yours or something else, to store their third key. And it was kind of at a you know it was at a more automated level. That seems like that would be really really valuable. Is this the sort of thing that you know you think can turn into a consumer product? Do you think that this space will have solutions like the ones you're offering at an enterprise level for consumers at some point? Or do these things, are they just incompatible?
2: Oh, there are already consumer solutions. We're not focusing on those, and we're not designed to deliver a software solution. But many of our partners are doing exactly that. So one of our partners is Gem, and Gem has a multi-signature wallet. And part of that wallet involves an Oracle signer. And an Oracle signer is basically a piece of software that applies signatures based on policy uh, velocity, what amount it is, what percentage amount. There are lots of other companies doing very similar things: Cryptocore, BitGo, Green Address, and others who are doing hierarchical deterministic multi-signature with policy controls and automatic oracle signing. And then, if you're using one of those services, whether for as a consumer or as an enterprise customer, again, there is a backup cold storage key that you're supposed to safely store. And that's where we come in. So we can actually generate keys that can be used with those services where we hold the third key safe. And then you don't have to worry about all of the rather complex operational process you need to do in order to ensure that that, that third key both remains secure and is available if you need a recovery. So if people are interested in learning more, or they think that you know, they might like to be your customer, where do they contact you? Thirdkey.solutions is the website.
1: So I actually also have a project that I just finished. This is very different from what Andreas just talked about, but I recently recorded an audio book called The Book of Satoshi, which is like the collected writings of Satoshi Nakamoto. It was put together by Phil Champagne and he's got some commentary in there also on all of Satoshi's stuff. But it basically takes all of Satoshi's published writing as well as some of his private emails and puts them together in one place. The reason I really loved narrating that book was because I just felt like I got to know Satoshi so much better. And it's funny because so many of the conversations that we hear in Bitcoin today, like about block size or mining or hashing or whatever, they actually already happened with Satoshi's input and they're still going on. You know, it's like people forget that Satoshi actually weighed in on these things and had, had opinions that could have solved a lot of these issues. So it was just really interesting to kind of look back at that period in time in history during like 2009, 2010, when Satoshi was actually out there and posting stuff on the internet and just get to know Satoshi a little bit better.
0: Just to put you on the spot, I'm curious, was there anything in there that he was just wrong about? Like, was there anything that jumped out at you that were like, yeah, that didn't really go the way that that he thought it was going to (laughs) go? Because I mean, He was definitely a very forward-looking individual, definitely did think through a lot of these problems, you know, and saw a lot of the problems that would emerge over time. But he's still just a man, so, I mean, one assumes there's something.
2: Yeah, she's still just a woman. Who knows? (laughs) Still just a human. There you go.
1: Or a transgender individual, or someone who doesn't have a gender.
2: (laughs) Still a person who can make mistakes. Still human.
1: Right. At least we think it's human, yeah. I mean... Uh, there was definitely a, a defined writing style that seemed like a human, but now we're having AIs that can pass Turing tests and fool people into thinking they're 12-year-old boys. So I don't know, man, but <laughs> I believe Satoshi is a person. But as far as your question, Adam, was there anything that Satoshi was wrong about? A couple of things jumped out at me that I thought were kind of funny. One was Satoshi actually suggested and endorsed using Bitcoin mining equipment As a heater, (laughs) like in cold climates, Satoshi was basically said, well, you know, if you're, if you have electric heating, you might as well just mine Bitcoins and then get your heat that way. (laughs) I don't think Satoshi anticipated, you know, ASICs and how mining would go, but Satoshi was super careful about planning almost everything about Bitcoin. And there were so many people who asked questions and. Maybe didn't quite get it or grasp the concept at first, even really brilliant cryptographers, but this was just a new thing when Bitcoin was first coming out. And Satoshi was able to just answer all their questions in a really clear and concise way. So I was super impressed with the thought process of Satoshi. The other thing that jumped out at me was that the last known correspondence of Satoshi was, of course, with Gavin Andreessen. And basically it was this email exchange that Gavin has only released part of it. The last part of this email exchange, Gavin tells Satoshi that he is going to give a talk to the CIA about Bitcoin. And then Satoshi disappears.
0: <laughs> uh, that was the end of that.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because like reading into that email, it sounds like Gavin is sort of trying to, you know, drop it in in casual conversation that, Oh, well, I've done, I've agreed to do something that. Maybe be really smart or maybe really stupid, I'm not really sure yet, but I've agreed to give a talk to the CIA about Bitcoin. And <laughs> Satoshi, you can see that Satoshi's getting really uncomfortable. Throughout Satoshi's writings, they're just very concerned about attracting attention, very concerned about, especially like being under the microscope of law enforcement. So you definitely start to see the personality of Satoshi come out a lot through the writing, and it's actually very entertaining. If you're interested in the book, you can hear a sample. It's on Audible now. It's called The Book of Satoshi by Phil Champagne. And just search for that on Audible or Amazon to hear the sample. I thought it was a really cool project. That
2: sounds fantastic. I definitely can't wait to listen to that.
1: So speaking of paranoia, privacy, and security, there was an incident recently with the Bitcoin forum that we all know and love. They got subpoenaed. And actually, it's just pretty much one guy who runs it, Michael Marquat a.k.a. Thymos, is the administrator of the bitcointalk.org forum, which is pretty much the Bitcoin forum that everybody refers to. And he got subpoenaed by, I guess, the U.S. government and forced to release 600 people's private messages in regards to Butterfly Labs. And anyone who sent private messages or interacted with the staff of Butterfly Labs accounts on the Bitcoin forum may have been affected by this. And like I said, there were 600 people that had potentially their personal information sent to the government. Michael Marquot actually said he tried as hard as he could to kind of like fight for users' privacy, but he was still shocked at the amount of information that he was forced to give up.
2: Just to clarify, I believe the, and in all fairness to Themos, the original request Was for any and all private messages that mentioned BFL Butterfly Labs or some of the names of the participants in Butterfly Labs in total. Anything mentioning them, they were supposed to turn over. So he negotiated with his lawyers, as far as I understand, to reduce the scope of the search to something more specific and finally got it down to only emails to and from the identified Butterfly Labs employees who are on the forum, which resulted in a a catch of a private message covering 600 users. But I think that was the reduced scope. So it's important to at least give credit. You know, a subpoena isn't final. It's the beginning of a conversation. And there is definitely, at least in some countries, the opportunity through due process to question the scope of the subpoena and the context of the subpoena and to try to limit it, if not quash it altogether through legal process. And it looks like in this case, they almost did exactly that.
1: How many forum operators or companies would have just rolled right over and said, oh yes, we'll give you everything. (laughs) You want everyone's password? Sure.
0: (laughs) Well, and the particularly interesting point here is that this is again, not happening in a vacuum. A couple of weeks ago, we did an episode with Mike from CoinFire and we talked about geniuses at work, Gaw Miner and Josh Garza and PayCoin. Since that happened, all of the emails that were subpoenaed by the government, they got the entirety of everything that had gone through their Gmail accounts and their Google app accounts was all published, whether it was related, related to Gaw or not, because once it got into a subpoena, somebody else could get their hands on that subpoena, you know, the results of that subpoena, and then somebody else could leak the results of that subpoena. So Google, Gmail gave up the Gaw minor people entirety, their entire Gmail accounts and the entire record that now has found its way onto the broad internet.
1: Could you imagine if your entire Gmail history and account was completely public for everyone to see? I've been
0: reading through it, actually. I mean, and it's fascinating. It's completely, completely fascinating, you know, because you get you get this complete inside slice that otherwise you absolutely don't have. You can see what these people are saying. We've been talking to a lawyer who turns out was working with God at one point. And so it was very interesting to be able to go through and see the types of correspondences he'd had with that organization. Yeah, you know, the information, when you put it onto somebody else's platform, if they get subpoenaed, they're giving you up because you are worth a lot less to them than, you know, continuing to not
2: have a problem with the government is. Google doesn't just turn over stuff. They not only provide a transparency report, which shows how many requests they get and what types of requests they get. First of all, they require subpoenas. You know, there's a whole range of letters that you can receive, requests for information. A lot of companies will basically turn over everything at the first sign of a fax that has an eagle on it, regardless of where it comes from. So, you know, Podunk Sheriff in tiny town in a different state sends a request for everything on a user without any due process or warrants or anything like that. And they'll turn over everything. Google does actually require subpoenas and and fights them. And the other thing also to note is that Themos put in place a protective order. So, as part of the subpoena response, they had the court agree to applying a protective order. And a protective order is a court stipulation that the information is maintained confidential so that the result of the subpoena is not published in full. Now, that protective order still means that the defendant in this case, or the defendants from BFL, will get copies of all of this information, and they may well leak it in violation of the protective order, which is one of the concerns that Themos had. But at least there is a protective order in place, and again, that was because of Themos resisting and requesting that protective order as part of the subpoena response.
0: So all things considered, as far as Thamos's response to this, you know, he pretty much did what he could and spent money to do it.
2: Yes, I mean listen, if you're if you're operating in the US or if you're operating as a US a company or in any jurisdiction really and you receive a a lawful request with with the appropriate documentation by a judge, you can fight the scope, you can fight the terms, you can resist, you can put protective orders in place, but in the end, you have to comply. That's part of the legal compact, part of the justice system. There's no choice as to whether you're going to comply in the end if it's properly formed lawful order. The the point is Don't roll over the first time you see an eagle on a fax paper, right? Not all orders are binding, and you can certainly negotiate the terms. And I think, yeah, he did exactly what he should do, which is protect his users from an overbroad response and from publishing that information.
1: There's another aspect to this, too, which is why is this subpoena happening in regard to Butterfly Labs? Are they still being investigated? This would say, yeah, they are. So they got raided. The timeline here is uh, September of last year, Butterfly Labs got raided and shut down by the Federal Trade Commission. But then they opened back up in January, and they said they were going to start shipping things and issuing refunds to some customers. But uh, apparently, the case is not closed on Butterfly Labs.
0: Well, fraud doesn't stop being fraud just because you say you're going to make it right with people.
2: Right. And keep in mind, it wasn't just the Federal Trade Commission. It was the Federal Trade Commission together with local and state officials from Kansas. And the subpoena that they must responded to was a subpoena from the Kansas Department of Investigations. So yes, it is absolutely continuing to investigate and collect information.
0: Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by The Tokenly Project and our first product coming soon, rentable swap bot vending machines. Let's say you sell coffee by the pound or web design services by the hour. It's easy, fast, and cheap to create a token on the Bitcoin blockchain that you control with a specific name that represents your product or service and is made valuable because you'll accept it for that product or service. You'll create a coffee pound or design hour token. And then rent a swap bot vending machine from us for $5 to $10 per month to automatically sell your new token 24 hours a day and 7 days a week. You'll set the price in dollars and it'll be payable in Bitcoin and potentially LTB coin storage or other counterparty based tokens you might choose to accept. When someone with your token wants to use it for the stuff it represents, they go to your website, load up a shopping cart, and check out. When it's time to pay, aside from the normal credit card and Bitcoin payment options, our product token slot adds the ability to customize and specify what tokens you accept. Representing your product or service as a token is very new. The question really is, why would anyone want to do this? I'll give you the bullet point version. You can allow users to achieve price stability by not forcing them to buy your product right when they need it, and instead allowing them to buy it as a token when they want it, and to redeem it at a different time when they actually need the product or service. You can create multi-tiered automated bulk discount and reseller programs. Bitcoin blockchain security means your product can change hands as a token dozens or hundreds of times before being redeemed. You as the business don't care because you're paid in full as soon as the first person buys it. You can participate in automated gift exchanges, use your tokenized product to barter or trade, and even have your product bundled with other tokens created by other businesses who make their money selling your product to new markets and different users. As you can tell, I'm really excited about this stuff. If you've got an existing online or brick and mortar business and you're interested in working on a pilot program with Tokenly to see if tokenization is right for you, email Adam at tokenly.com to start the conversation. Oh, and today's magic word, that's book. B-O-O-K. Book. You've got until the 16th of May to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. So, in the world of cryptocurrency, different people and different protocols are trying to solve different problems. Some of the projects that I've been very interested in, like BitShares, specifically tried to attack the problem of dollar gateways. And that actually is what this topic is about. It's about dollar gateways and what that actually means. So, the context for this story actually is Ripple. Ripple also has implemented a feature called Freeze. And they did this a while ago into the protocol. Nobody really noticed at the time, unless you were really paying attention to Ripple. But what it means is that If I am a dollar gateway, right, if I buy Ripple and give you a token that I will then redeem for dollars that I will transfer to your account, that makes me a money transmitter. And there are certain regulations and requirements that kind of come along with that. If you are an exchange that deals with Bitcoin, if somebody robs you or if there turns out to be a problem, then there's really nothing you can do about it. The token, once it's gone, once it's out of your system, is gone and it's no longer in your possession. But if you're a company that's trying to make a Bitcoin-like protocol that appeals to banks or to people who already have money transmitter licenses, then they look at that and they say, well, okay, but I can't be compliant if something like this exists. If I can't reverse transactions, if I don't have control over my exposure for the tokens I'm putting out there, then that creates a real problem for me.
1: Right. And there were already like some community banks who were starting to use Ripple's protocol, right?
0: You know, Ripple is very attractive to banks because it's just like a tokenized IOU system. So you can create any type of IOU in that you want. And again, that means that gateways that take in dollars and put out cryptocurrency, right, and give you cryptocurrency, can create their own assets that then they will redeem for dollars. So again, like if I am an exchange and Stephanie, you are also an exchange and we are different exchanges, then I would issue Adam dollars, you would issue Stephanie dollars, and you would control Stephanie dollars. And you and when people bring Stephanie dollar to you, you would accept them at whatever rate you set and you would... You know, wire transfer to them, uh, whatever type of money.
1: This is way more power than I'm comfortable with.
0: <laughs> I know, right? It, it's a lot of power, but it's also, it's a real responsibility because again, as a company doing this, if you're doing it legally in the United States with United States customers, you have to have licenses, you have to be regulated. There's, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it. So it's not just like anybody can do this. So what groups like Ripple and BitShares have done is to make it so that when you create one of these assets, you have the ability to essentially tick a setting that makes it so that you can freeze what people do with your assets if things go haywire. So the obvious scenario is somebody breaks into somebody's wallet and steals 100,000 atom bucks. Technically, those are fungible, right? They, uh, I can't tell the difference between those and anybody else's atom bucks. But in a system where I have this ability I can choose to freeze the entire currency and make it so everybody who has the currency cannot send it to anybody but me as the issuer, right? So I can refund them, but I can't send it to you. Or the other option is that they can pick one individual person, one individual account that they identify as a malicious account and freeze just that one. If I have uh, Adam Bucks in my uh, account and you have, and I also have Stephanie Bucks in my account and you freeze Stephanie Bucks, I can still use the Adam Bucks in my account, but I can't use the Stephanie Bucks anymore.
2: Right. From completely disruptive to completely PayPal, which of the banks in three years. Congratulations, Ripple. Well, so again, that is what winds up happening, I think. But the, the question is, why is that what winds up happening? That is what winds up happening in a system that has centralized controls designed into the protocol, and that is a choice. It is something that does not end up happening in a system that is a decentralized protocol because it is not helpful to regulation and its ability to be regulated, or rather its inability to be regulated through the protocol like that, is not a bug. It's a feature. This is how we're seeing now what happens when you have those capabilities within the protocol because, of course, what is the first use of that feature? A very, very self serving use. When's the first time they turned this on with Ripple, and when did they use it to freeze a specific user's account?
0: It was eight months later, but it is important to mention that this was used to solve a, uh, an exchange heist before. They did do that. That did actually happen, and it wasn't too long. And yeah, there was a hack and attempted theft in October of 2014 at JustCoin, and they used their power as a Ripple gateway to freeze the specific funds of the attacker, and
2: then they were able to pull the funds out of his account, essentially. And now, this time, they're using it to block Jeb McCaleb's funds, a former co-founder of Ripple, which is entirely self-serving. So they are a law unto themselves, right? Well, so Ripple didn't do this
0: freeze. This is something that has been kind of misunderstood. I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you've misunderstood this, Andreas, but Ripple did not initiate the freeze. Ripple asked the issuer of the dollar token, right? They asked Bitstamp, which issues their own dollar token to put a freeze on that. So what happened is Ripple kind of exploited the system actually, because what happened is uh, Jed McCaleb, who's the former founder of Ripple, who left Ripple to start Stellar some time ago, essentially tried to sell 96 million XRP in one large batch. And there's questions over whether or not this was a contractual breach, because maybe he wasn't supposed to sell them, or maybe he was. We don't really know. The point is, is that if we were just talking about Bitcoin, he could have done it. And in this case, because of the type of freeze that was enabled, he couldn't do it. And so now...
2: Well, hang, hang on a second. You forgot one important fact here, which is that Judd McCaleb is currently in court. Not today, but uh, during this period, this is being adjudicated by the courts because there is now a lawsuit between Ched McCaleb and the former founders of Ripple over the exact disposition of the 9.6 million XRP. Now, there hasn't been a court decision. This has not been adjudicated. However, Ripple has executed this freeze without any judicial approval and has used their control over the network in order to decide before the court has decided whether it is lawful to distribute these XRP and effectively made it impossible, even if it may perhaps be lawful. So that is an extrajudicial act by the network operator. Whether it's in compliance with law, we don't know, because the court decision hasn't happened yet. Well, let me push back on you with that,
0: Andreas. Again, I don't think that you can really say that Ripple did this. All Ripple did was they asked Bitstamp to do it, and then Bitstamp decided that they would do it. Now, the the issue is, is that in another system, they wouldn't have had the option to do it. But in this system, they do have the
2: option to do it. So they designed the system that gave them the option to do it, then they asked one of the operators to do it, and then that operator did it. I wonder what power they had over uh, Bitstamp if Bitstamp said no.
1: Exactly. How did they ask?
2: (laughs) Well, the interesting part is that Bitstamp has sued both of them. (laughs) Oh, so all three parties are now being involved in this, and yet, well, you know, I have a serious problem with this. I mean, the, the basic issue with whitelists, and we've discussed this many times before, whitelists or blacklists of this type can be used to destroy the fungibility of the coin and to create centralized controls which one actor can exert without due process, without any justification in law, to exert power over the network, over the use of the network, and to do politics, basically. And in this case, this is entirely self-serving politics on behalf of Ripple, and they use the feature that they designed into the network for self-serving purposes. I find that absolutely abhorrent. This is a perfect example of how fast that slippery slope happens. We've gone from stopping a heist, to a completely self-serving and extrajudicial move by Ripple in in the span of just a couple of years. The slippery slope doesn't take very long to develop in these things, and this is exactly why I think that Bitcoin's decentralized nature and the absolute refusal to introduce blacklists into the protocol is a key feature. It's not a bug. So the thefts
0: that we see in Bitcoin, as far as it sounds like you're concerned, Andreas, They are the price that we pay, and it is not an expensive one, relative to having the ability to fix those heists, but also having the ability to do anything else for political reasons.
2: No, because you are assuming there that these heists can be fixed, and one example of one heist being stopped by Ripple, a network that isn't as well decentralized and distributed, is not what would happen in Bitcoin, because in Bitcoin, if you did implement these blacklists and just one party opted out of the blacklists and and decided to continue processing transactions, what would happen is that it wouldn't stop heists. And in a highly decentralized network like Bitcoin, a blacklist would be used and be very effective for political control, but would be completely ineffective in stopping heists because you can use all kinds of techniques to get around these blocks. In fact, what it would do is it would encourage further development of more anonymous and untraceable currencies instead of Bitcoin. But even in Bitcoin, it wouldn't stop heights. So, this is the problem. The problem is that it's prescribed as a cure for theft. It doesn't actually cure theft, but it does kill fungibility in the protocol. And it introduces a central point of power that can be used for political purposes. And as soon as you have it in place, it will be used. Because if you have blacklists, then you're going to see regulation not only asking for these blacklists to be used, but demanding that, for example, all exchanges within a country follow the blacklists, perhaps a specific blacklist published by the DOJ or somebody else. And the other really bad problem with this is the average user who is doing perfectly legitimate transactions and receives money from someone now has to check that money against every blacklist known in existence because otherwise the money they receive may be part of a frozen pool and they don't know about that. So every transaction becomes suspect. You can no longer do independent verification. You now have counterparty risk, which is the most important feature that we got rid of. And, and that counterparty risk is the person who controls the blacklist. And if you have decentralized networks, that means a lot of blacklists you have to check. And if you miss just one of them, you've received worthless money. This is a solution that not only destroys the currency, but doesn't even achieve its supposed goal. Okay. So again, I hear you saying that like
0: there are singular points of centralization in there, and I'm just not seeing that. With-
1: Where are you not seeing it? I mean, it's the ripple board, you know, that has all the power. I've- no, no, no. But that's
0: what I'm saying is they don't. The ripple board has nothing to do with this. This is done like, this is like if we had this ability in uh, counterparty and I issued LTB coin with this ability turned on, then if somebody stole 100000 I would actually be able to go in, specify the account, and reassign the asset.
1: Well, I hope I never do anything to piss you off, Adam. No, 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 but
0: I don't have that ability, so I don't want that ability. That's all fine, but I'm also not a dollar gateway. I'm not responsible for giving dollars to people who then come to me with that token and say, hey, you've said this is a redeemable token, it's also fungible, so let me redeem it. So, you know, Andreas, it seems like your concern is more about blacklists, which is what would result if you didn't have the ability to freeze or reassign balances?
2: Well, no, this is a specific blacklist, which is they've blacklisted Jeb McCaleb's XRP using Bitstamp as their active party to blacklist Jeb McCaleb's XRP from being redeemed on the network. Right. But in the protocol, it's black. The point is, is that it's impossible to use it within the
0: protocol. So he couldn't send it to anybody else. It is literally not, he's not able to in the system anymore. So it, I mean, I don't think it compromises fungibility.
2: Right. And that's not centralized
0: power. Not with Ripple. Not with Ripple. That's with the issuer. Bitstamp is the person that has the centralized power here, but you can go to a different uh, exchange that even uses Ripple. So again, like there, there is some competition here. It's not like, The entire protocol is just inherently anybody on the Ripple board can say, you know, no, that guy over there, he was being a douche to me, so, you know, I'm going to take his money.
1: It sounds like that's exactly what happened, though.
0: Well, yeah, they asked and somebody said yes, but that's the point is they had to ask somebody else. They don't actually have the ability to do that, and that person can say no.
2: They could theoretically, but maybe then they got their Ripple gateway ripped from them and maybe that reduced their ability to operate their network.
1: Yeah, we don't know what strings were attached. But
0: again, it's open source software. Um, You know, the reason why a company like Bitstamp is using it is because they already run their infrastructure and this was simply the the best stack for them to work on as far as they could see it at the time. Not anymore. That, that very well may be true, but again, they had the ability to do this. And they, it seems like that's, I guess, the interesting part is that Their first response, like I said earlier, was to sue both Ripple and Stellar, basically, or all of the parties involved with this. And this is them basically saying, thanks a lot for giving us this power. We hate you, you know?
2: I guarantee you that within a few years, once the regulators figure out that this is possible, they're going to mandate that only blacklist-capable currencies such as Ripple be used by certain financial institutions, and they're going to mandate that those institutions, if they want to be able to do dollar work, have to follow a specific blacklist issued by a specific central provider, perhaps Treasury, perhaps Department of Justice, perhaps fincen and then a hundred other countries are going to follow suit and add their own blacklists, and then you're going to end up exactly where we're talking. This slippery slope isn't even you know, that theoretical. We've seen it's a very steep and very slippery slope, and we've already progressed all the way down to the bottom just within a couple of years with a perfect demonstration of why blacklists are a terrible idea.
0: Okay. So then the last question that I have on this particular topic is, you know, something like Bitstamp, the reason why they use a token like this, or the reason why it's attractive is because it is very similar to what somebody like Coinbase does, right? Where they have a Mt. Gox style private, you know, centralized exchange, and then they trade tokens. And yet these are real IOUs that can also exist outside of, of Bitstamp's particular ecosystem.
2: I think it would be interesting to see how such things can now be implemented using overlays on top of the Bitcoin protocol, such as Counterparty and others, which do not implement these types of blacklisting features and do not allow you to implement these kinds of blacklisting features, which will actually make them much more fungible and which will provide something that is really important in a currency, which is the promise of future exchangeability of that currency, regardless of origin. And real currency has that feature, which is why governments around the world are trying to ban cash. You know, the motivation is very clear here. We want total surveillance money, total control money. Cash should be banned, digital currencies should be banned, and blacklists are good. And for me, philosophically, I am on the exact opposite camp.
1: A story is coming to mind. It was just April 15th, which is the day that there's the deadline to file taxes in the US here. And back in 1969, there was a guy called Carl Hess, who was basically a tax protester. You know, he's a liberty-oriented guy. He had a moral opposition to paying his taxes. And so he sent a letter to the IRS basically saying, I can't pay this in good conscience, and here's my empty 1040 form. And they sent him back a letter saying, you are prohibited from possessing money. And they put a 100% lien on his earnings from the future of that point forward. I think he was actually an attorney, and. He wrote them back and said, do you realize that if I can't possess money, I'm going to starve. I won't be able to buy food. And they just replied and said, that's your problem, not ours. This could actually (laughs) become something that could be enforced now with types of, you know, if, if all the currencies are able to have blacklists built in and are able to have this level of control that, you know, there's always a good excuse, a compelling excuse, national security or personal disputes or lawsuits or whatever. But whatever it is, you know, this could have real consequences for some people.
2: Last week, JP Morgan Chase sent a letter to all of the people who have safe deposit boxes in their banks and said that it is now prohibited under the terms and conditions of owning these safe deposit boxes to put cash or other convertible instruments in these safe deposit boxes unless they have collectors value only. This is not a coincidence. This is part of a broader scheme we've seen in the French legislature proposals to ban the use of cash for any amount above a very very small amount i think it was somewhere around 500 us dollars or something like that so they're proposing to ban cash transactions above that amount and require bank controlled convertible instruments such as checks credit cards debit cards etc this is now becoming a global push and we need to be very aware of it uh, governments around the world have decided They really, really like this new regime of totalitarian financial surveillance that they instituted after 9-11. They really like the capabilities it gives them, but the only problem is there's this pesky cash that's undermining that ability, so they're going to ban cash. This is going to be a big multi-decade fight, and cryptocurrencies are going to be a big part of this. So that's all
0: great, I think. And obviously in a perfect world, nobody wants something like this. Great is one way to describe it. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's this, this fine. But, but like Ripple and Bitchers have not gone down this path because they thought it was the fun thing to do. They've done this because they've put these things into their
2: protocol. Well,
1: it doesn't matter what they think of it. It's what they've done. It's what they've done and how they
2: used it. And they proved exactly their motivation the way they used it. Okay. So my
0: question here is, it seems like they think dollar gateways matter. It seems like they think that giving people the ability to go from dollars or whatever the local legacy currency is directly into Ripple or BitShares or whatever, without having to go through Bitcoin in the middle, that that is a valuable thing and that it is something that they are willing to put these features in to, in their eyes, make it more likely that that's going to happen or more easier for that type of user to participate. So if they think this is importance because it's something that's required by the legacy system and we're telling we're saying no this absolutely cannot stand then c- is there any solution for them i mean is there any solution to make their t- their token more attractive if we're saying any way you make it more attractive makes it less attractive to users like us
2: more attractive to whom they're trying to make their token more attractive to the legacy banks because the legacy banks have billions they want to throw into a lukewarm, almost a cryptocurrency, not quite decentralized, not a threatening copy that will secure their interests and allow them to continue business as usual while ignoring all of the other stuff that's really quite disruptive and unpalatable. They can't swallow Bitcoin because Bitcoin catches in their throat and as a result they're trying to swallow Ripple because it's an easier pill to swallow. Well great, let Ripple take the VC and bank money. We've got more important things to do.
0: Thanks for listening to episode 211 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.